Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 109. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. On this episode, our special guest is Juggler, professor of economics, and co-author of When Balls Collide, Understanding the Skills of Juggling, Mr. Arthur LaBelle. Before I talk to Arthur, let's thank our sponsor, the IJA. That stands for International Jugglers Association. I've been involved with that great group of jugglers for over 40 years. And you can find out about them at juggle.org. All right, sit back. Drop everything. Get ready to listen to Arthur LaBelle. Welcome to Drop Everything podcast number 109. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. And today's special guest is Professor of Economics and, may I say, future Nobel Prize winner, Arthur LaBelle. Hello, Arthur. Hi. My mother agrees with you, but nobody else does about the Nobel thing. Well, I can see it. I can see it in the future with your past <laughs> economic work and your, your brilliant intellect. It's just a matter of time. And getting rid of all those people in front of me in line. Well, I know. I know. <laughs> we'll do something about those people. Yeah. Before there was Professor Arthur LaBelle, there was young man Arthur LaBelle. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background, where you were born and what your parents did for a living. So I grew up in uh, Queens, New York. My dad was a watch repairman and uh, my mom was a homemaker. Well, there's not, not too much to, not too much to say about it. Brothers or siblings or uh, <laughs> only child? I got a whole bunch of them. No, no, there were five kids. Oh, okay. So I had two, two older brothers. I have a twin sister and a younger brother. Anybody also interested in juggling or show business or just yourself? Uh, well, other than my younger brother being, in his, being a show-off, no. <laughs> and where were you first aware of juggling? Did you see it on television? Do you remember the, the first time juggling appeared in your life? Yeah, I, I do. I was... Um, in high school. And at the time I was interested in magic, sleight of hand. And I was reading books in the library because this is well before the internet about how to do magic tricks. And there was the part about learning how to do them, which was interesting. And then there was the part about standing in front of a mirror and hiding it. And mm -hmm. that part I found completely boring. So you're, you're like the mechanics of it, but not the performing of it? Yeah. Yeah. In particular, yeah. Just trying to make it so you couldn't see it. I, di I didn't care about that at all. And after I finished reading all the magic books in the library, the next book on the on the shelf was a How to Juggle book. Hmm. Uh, it was something that you had to learn how to do, and there was no hiding part. You just had to learn how to do it. And so I thought that was the thing for me. Do you remember which book that was? Uh, was that uh, Juggling by Carlo? The or This was before Carlo's book. So hmm. this was early 70s. The book was called Juggling Made Easy by Rudolf Dietrich. And I can tell you now that it is the worst book to learn to juggle from that's ever been written. What made it the worst book? Well, like there was one page on how to do three balls. And it had one picture of three balls with three hours coming out of it. And then you turn the page and the next page said four balls. Ah, so no tricks, just, just the basic cascade. <laughs> I mean, there was some stuff later in the book, a few basic tricks like two and one. But essentially, the book you know, gave very, very little instruction on how to actually juggle. I remember that. I also remember the Harry Mall uh, juggling set. Hmm. Yeah. So I didn't, I only, I only learned about that years later. So this book was basically the only book that I'd found that I had. And um, it took me a long time, but I did eventually teach myself to cascade from it. And then I remember seeing on television, like Thanksgiving Day Parade or some parade, and there was, you know, 20 seconds of someone juggling five clubs. Wow. And it, and it, I don't, I have no idea who it was but it kind of burned in my brain. So, wow, that's, you know, that, that's like the ultimate foreign goal. Now, could your imagination this. have been playing tricks on you? Because in a parade, uh, to see someone juggling five clubs seems... I, it was stopped. It was not oh. while walking. It was, you know, the stop, did a little performance thing, and, and it was really like you know, like maybe a 10-second clip. And so in maybe my like memory, a circus group or something like that? He was by himself. I have no idea who it was. In my memory, he was doing five club triples, but, but ah. I could be wrong about that. Right, right, right. Well, I imagine having just seen there, just learned three balls to see that, you think that is the ultimate level yeah. of juggling. Yeah. So that I basically I was by myself, standing over the bed, doing three balls. I, I, you know, since I saw that thing, I said, "Oh, there's clubs. What do I have around here? It looks like a club." And my uh, little brother had these plastic bowling pins that were about eight inches long and weighed about a quarter of an ounce. And I said, "Those are club shaped," and I learned how to juggle three. Of those, I did not know about putting a dowel down it or anything like that. And so that was how I learned clubs. Right, because that's the basis of the, the the Carlo Club was to have those, and then add the dowels. Juggling yeah, the yeah. Dowels must have been quite quite challenging. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. And were you surrounded by other jugglers? Did you meet other jugglers or, or were you just learning in a vacuum? No, no, no. I, for the first few years, it was just, just me. And then somewhere around, I think maybe my senior year in high school, I, I was just in, uh, in a park and um, another juggler showed up. And uh, it was John Grimaldi. And he had like real clubs, which was a revelation. And he told me that he ran a juggling club which met at Trinity Church in downtown New York, uh, basically in the, in the yard of the church, and that I should come down. You know, I just thought this was the most wonderful thing in the world. And I went, and as soon as I showed up, there was a kid who was, you know, a little, I think a little younger than me, and the kid was doing five clubs. I was like, what the heck? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Turned out it was Steve Mills. Oh, okay. A very, very, a very, very young Steve Mills. And then, you know, other jugglers showed up, and it was... Uh, I, uh, that was my introduction to the real juggling world. It was great. Now, what do you think made juggling your hobby as opposed to someone who's learned to juggle? And most people, that's enough. They learn to juggle. What attracted you to make, make it your hobby? You know, I um, was kind of a clumsy kid. and This was kind of the opposite. And so, uh, you know, I just felt like if I can do this, I was not good at like sports that involved interacting with other people. Mm -hmm. You know, I could shoot a basketball. Yeah, pretty, pretty accurate, but I couldn't really play basketball with other people just wasn't good at that so this was something you could kind of do on your own and it and it, uh i just took to it and i immediately wanted to do numbers you know i immediately wanted to do four and then when i learned four i immediately wanted to do five i guess that's kind of a common thread is that juggling is you know well i say some jugglers are introverted and then some feel like you know normal traditional sports don't really attract them i also kind of felt i had bad coordination and that a lot of people think you must be born with good coordination to be a juggler. But do you also believe that juggling helps you build coordination and that? Oh, absolutely. The, the analogy I, I tell people is it's like bodybuilding. You know, you don't become a bodybuilder because you're strong. You, you do the weights and then that makes you strong. And, you know, it's kind of the same thing. You do the juggling and it makes you more coordinated. I guess some people would have a more of a natural ability but I agree sure. that the more you sure. juggle, the better your reflexes and coordination yeah. goes. Yeah, yeah. Now, it turns out that I had relatively fast reflexes, that I've always been kind of quick. But, you know, I didn't, didn't know that. It didn't show up in other aspects of life. And it was only later I discovered, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty speedy. In high school, what did you want to do? Did you, did you ever think about becoming a performer? Because in my recollection, you didn't really have a performing career. Was that something you no, thought about? Or? No, I never thought that it would be my career. I was at the time a senior in high school and then, and then in college, I was in a medieval recreation group called the Society for Creative Anachronism. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I was in that, as soon as I joined that, they said, oh, juggling, this fits right in. You know, you, should, you could perform for us. And so I used to do performances for them, but it was kind of, it was not like performing for the public. It was like performing for the friendliest audience you can imagine. You ever do any Renaissance fairs, anything like that? No, I didn't actually do, do rent fairs, no. Because again, it was not, I, I was happy to, to do some performing for this very friendly you know, audience of friends. I tried a little bit of street performing and uh, it just wasn't, you know, it clearly I didn't have the right personality for it at all. I remember seeing a picture of you, I think with a partner I think there was a unicycle involved, and you were wearing some kind of medieval garb. Was that from that time? Uh, <laughs> that that that, uh, that was in college. I was in a play. The um, show director wanted to do a performance of Two Gentlemen of Verona, but his idea was that the Duke's guards would be unicycling Hell's Angels. <laughs> okay. So he had three of us in unicycles and cut-off jackets and chains, uh, wheeling around on stage. It, it was kind of fun. Now, did you learn to unicycle for that production, or was that something you'd already had in your bag of tricks? When I uh, came to MIT as a freshman, there was a unicycle club already there. And so I immediately, you know, I thought, well, there, was, there wasn't a juggling club, but there was a unicycle club. I thought, well, I'm just going to go and learn how to ride the unicycle. And uh, I, when I went to the unicycle club, I brought my juggling stuff, so my freshman year, I learned to ride a unicycle, but I also taught a few of the unicyclists how to juggle. And before the end of my freshman year, I started a juggling club at MIT. Is that club still going? It is still going. So this was 47 years ago, and it is still going, which I, I think is just amazing. I wonder if that's the longest running juggling club in the United States. It probably, well, at, at the, I know 
like I did some research maybe 20 years ago. And at the time, it was the longest in continuous operation. Uh, so there had been other clubs that had stopped and started a few times. There was, uh, I think, the um, there, there were a couple of West Coast clubs that I think started earlier, but then disappeared. So I think this is uh, by far the longest in continuous operation. We had a hiatus of about two years for COVID, but it's uh, but it's back in business now. Still, still meeting Sunday afternoon. Well, I attended the what did. Uh... Uh, Valley College on Thursday nights, and uh, that's also still going. I know you've attended that as well. Yeah, yeah. And that could be in the, the same time period because I was got, I went there probably forty or some some odd years ago when it started for me. Yeah, a number of them started in like around nineteen eighty. I, I started this one in nineteen seventy five. Now I tried to get an MIT uh, many years ago. How do you <laughs> go from that journey of high school to actually being accepted? Were you uh, Exceptionally bright student? Did you, did you uh, score so well on I your had, test? I uh, scored well on my test. I had I did not have the slightest inkling that I would go to somewhere like MIT. My goal in high school had been to go to any four-year college like my brother did. Uh, my brother went to Central Connecticut State College, which is a perfectly fine college. But I had no no idea of going to like an Ivy League school. Uh, my high school was, was um, a very poor a very poor quality high school. It had a more than 30% dropout rate. And it, this was in public high, public schools in the 1970s in New York City. It kind of hit rock bottom. The whole city went bankrupt around that time. And so the schools were a mess. And there were a lot of specialty schools which skimmed all the cream. So the regular schools were quite poor. So I had no clue about going somewhere like MIT until I took my SATs. And my scores on my SATs were not high by MIT standards, but they were absurdly high by the standards of my high school. And I believe MIT recognized this and they wrote to me and they said, apply to MIT. And so I, I believe this was a form of affirmative action. I think they just said, <laughs> you know, somebody with scores this good coming where he's coming from has got to be a bright kid. And uh, so they wrote to me. And do you remember what your scores were? Because I, I remember mine, of course. Do you remember what yours were? <laughs> um, I think I do. I believe my English score was 690 and my math score was 780. And I was really annoyed because I couldn't, couldn't imagine what I'd gotten wrong on the math part. But apparently I got something wrong. Well, I'm proud to say that uh, I never took the SATs. So <laughs> I, I and you have no idea what those numbers mean. I have no idea. No, I know that they're and quite good. And they've probably good. changed. The numbers have probably changed four or five times what they mean now. So you know, yeah. only people my age are going to recognize those numbers. I think I would have got in triple digits combined for both of them. So <laughs> I, was, uh, I went right out of high school into uh, a juggling career. So college, right. except for a couple of years of junior college, I was not blessed with your... Uh, your sterling academic career. Now, when you were in school in MIT, you founded your juggling club. And what was mm -hmm. your area of study? Math. Math. And how do you feel you're going to apply it? I mean, is there a certain goal or certain career uh, visions you had for yourself? You know, I was remarkably not forward-looking. I chose math because it had the fewest requirements, which means I could take most of the course, as many courses as I wanted to. And I took courses in English because I liked writing. And I took courses in math. And I took courses in computer science, I took just all manner of, you know, just, just the, all, whatever, whatever caught my eye, I took those courses in. I, I just assumed I would just go into some kind of business. And in your club, any uh, noted jugglers come out of the club? Any professionals? A lot of um, Boston area professionals dropped by. It's less an MIT school club and more a Boston community juggling club. So the majority of people who were there are not MIT students. So mm. a lot of the local professionals became regulars uh, at the club. Any particular names we might recognize? So when I uh, first started the club, the uh, juggling groups that were probably best known in the Boston area were the Amazing Fantasy Jugglers. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess less juggling, more equilibristics was Locomotion Vaudeville. And uh, those two groups kind of owned the streets at the time. And uh, Rod Holbrook of the Fantasy Jugglers uh, used to come by the MIT club very regularly. I remember watching a video of them. They were quite good for their time. I mean, probably still good for now. I mean, because they had a drummer and they had a lot of choreography. They were very appealing. They, you know, they, they juggled the circus style juggling, you know, very low, fast passing. And they used Stu Reynolds clubs. 
So those made a loud thunk when you caught them. So there was a drummer that would like could do sound effects and rhythm and things. But even when the drummer stopped, you still heard thunk, thunk, thunk hmm. in, in that perfect rhythm. It was very appealing. Don and Lana were both uh, the, who were the main jugglers. Rod came later. Rod was more comic relief. Don and Lana were kind of the more driving force jugglers. And uh, they, they were both very, uh, very appealing. Lana was very good looking in this pixie kind of way. And the, the crowd just loved them. You know, the music, the music you could hear from far away, the drumming, and it would just, you know, this was a time when most street performers were just like a guy with a guitar in a doorway. The street scene hadn't become that well developed. And this polished big act just like took over Harvard Square. I remember, I think it was Rod, he was uh, sort of tall with curly hair. Did he juggle three basketballs or three larger balls Rod. in one routine? He had a routine where he did assorted juggling uh, sports props. So right. a football, a basketball, a ping pong ball. And geez, yeah, so, so he, did, he did more of the, the comic juggling. He was very skilled. Yeah, I remember it being a very strong act. And of course, that area, was that uh, called Harvard Square or Mallory Square? What, what Harvard is Square. That? Harvard Square. Square. Yeah, so that was the performing area. This was before Faneuil Hall became, became big. Uh, it was the place for street performers in the Boston area. And would you often go and watch the juggling shows? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But never thought, okay, I'm going to, you did, so you tried your own street performing. Is that where you tried it? I tried it a little bit. I didn't even dare go to Harvard Square. I wasn't that good. Um, I tried it a little bit. And there were a few times where another juggling group was like missing a member for a day. And then I, I filled in for them. <laughs> and that, I did that once or twice. And uh, that did a couple of, you know, I had another juggling friend uh, from early days of the juggling club called Dario, Dario Pittori, and he had invited me to like juggle with him once or twice. And I just, um, yeah, I, I, the, the performing, I just wasn't the natural performer, I don't think. But during college, you sort of pursued this uh, numbers? Loved numbers juggling. Loved, loved numbers juggling. What kind of juggling, what kind of numbers did you achieve during your college years? While I was still in college, I got a pretty solid seven ball pattern but nobody was taking video back in the, in the late 70s so i don't think there's any video of it there's a nice still picture of me and barry rosenberg who was another early mit juggler and sue kirby all standing uh, in a row doing seven balls and this was back when very very few people were 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 doing that yeah i remember sue kirby from my uh, ij years hmm. and she was a very strong female juggler and i think yes. uh could do nine balls. Phenomenal. Sorry. Yeah, she, she could she could flash nine. Yeah. My best. So I had kind of peaked in my in my 20s, later 20s. And at my best, I could do a few dozen catches of eight balls. And my best run of nine was 14 catches. Well, that's pretty good. And that, so you also mastered five clubs? I was not as good with clubs. I loved passing. So I, I still love passing. Yeah, I could do five clubs, but I couldn't like run it for, for ages or anything. Well, you did win a gold medal in club passing. We'll get to that in your, your yeah. is that with around the time you were in college or when did you attend your first IJA festival? My first IJA festival was in 1977. It was in Newark, uh, Delaware. I had um, actually joined the IJA a couple of years earlier, but that was the first one I was able to afford to go. It was a revelation. I think there were about a hundred people there and Hardly anybody had ever seen that many jugglers in one place before. And so you, you received the IGA magazines at that time. That was one of the, the key perks. Back then it was the IGA newsletter. So this was before oh, the newsletter. The magazine. Yeah. Right, right. Mm -hmm. That was before maybe Bill Giddes took it over. and That was before Bill Giddes uh, started Jugglers World. So it was just called it was just called something like the IGA newsletter or bulletin or something like that. Now, a lot of mathematicians are attracted to juggling. Do you think there's some kind of connection between mathematics and juggling that... They were both intriguing and they both are found intriguing by the same type of people. I definitely do. Yeah. But math people were attracted to it before. I mean, now there's that now there's a mathematics of juggling. Right. There's the whole. Mm -hmm. But even before that was developed, it was my impression. A lot of math people, a lot of computer science people were attracted to juggling. And yeah, I think something about the the motions and the. Uh, the simplicity, but also complexity. It was kind of an offbeat thing to do. And math people and computer science people were more willing to do stuff that would seem nonconformist or unconventional. So I think there were a lot of reasons why they they were attracted to it and still and are. And maybe most fields, both fields attract introverts, things that you can kind of do by yourself and that 
maybe the mainstream don't really appreciate as much as uh, your peers, you know, Absolutely. in those two fields. Yeah, yeah. I think that's all part of it. So let's go back to your college years. So you were studying. What did you? What kind of degree did you receive? So I got a uh, PhD in uh, math. And uh, oh, also that during that time is when I met Claude Shannon. Mm-hmm. So he uh, came to the. Uh, for for people that don't know, he was one of the leading mathematicians of the 20th century. Helped invent everything that's required for computers now. Um, he coined the word bit for for computers. He came by the juggling club one day and uh, asked if he could measure our juggling. And <laughs> we just thought, oh, it's just a kindly old professor. Sure, why not? Um, but he he stuck around. He came. We. Uh, Later, we had actually meetings in his house. People, the only way you could watch juggling videos was if you had a VCR and you had a machine that could watch it. Not everybody did. So every now and then, the juggling club would all go to Claude's house. He had a big living room. He had a t- big TV. And people would bring their video cassette tapes. And we'd watch recordings of jugglers there. And what did he mean by measure your juggling? Well, what he literally meant was how fast, how high the patterns were, because he he wrote the first paper on the mathematics of juggling. Uh, and I I know that you're quoted in a biography of Claude Shannon, so you got to know him quite well. Yeah. Uh, what, what was he like as a person? Was he uh, humorous? Was he? He was very soft-spoken. He was very self-deprecating. He loved jugglers. <laughs> he loved juggling. He liked eccentric motion. Uh, and I think juggling was an example of eccentric motion. So he built the first juggling robot. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, he, he, I mean, I had no idea how amazing at the time it was for like an undergraduate to be prof- friends with this older professor. And not only just an older professor, but like one of the leading lights of the 20th century. Now, I remember him because he also created, it wasn't a robot. It was some kind of like a diorama, like a moving. Well, both. He, he built both a, an actual robot that really juggled, and he also built, yeah, like this mechanical moving diorama that, that looked like juggling. Yeah, he was, he was sort of a well-known figure as, as a person who was taken seriously, but also had a serious interest in juggling. And there weren't that many people uh, like that. That's right. That's right. There were very few. Ron Graham, maybe another one like that. Now, let's talk a little about the science of juggling and, and sight swap. So I know that's mm-hmm. a particular interest of yours. What do you know about the history? So you're saying that he was an early innovator of it. Who else was in, in the early days? Well, he, interestingly enough, he actually did not innovate sight swap. Mm-hmm. So he was the first person to do any kind of mathematical analysis of juggling. And if you read his paper on it, which it took him a long time to get around to, to writing, it, uh, it looks like he's getting close. He didn't actually get there. He didn't actually invent sight swap. Um, so sight swap was most likely invented by uh, Paul Klimak, who called it uh, quantum juggling. But there were a few other early people that came up with either at the same time or a very similar time. We're talking the early 1980s, uh, came up with some of the ideas associated with it. Charlie Dancy was another, Mike Day, uh, Bruce Tiemann was an early, early advocate working on sight swaps. Bruce, he was also known as Bapo, is that correct? That's right. That's right. I remember Paul because of his great uh, frisbee juggling. Oh, yeah. 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 Tremendous. So I didn't actually do any of the early development of sight swap. But at the time, I had a column that I was writing for the Juggler's World magazine called The Academic Juggler that was just kind of, you know, somewhat more mathematical or serious kind of looking at juggling and rather than looking at it from the performing side. And so I was kind of one of the early publicizers that said, look, there's this cool thing these guys are inventing and you other jugglers should, uh, should take a look at it. For the layman, I mean, I have a, a basic understanding of side swap. So it's, give us a sort of a, in a nutshell version of what side swap is. Yeah, th- I think the simplest, uh, simplest way to think about it is if you start from a standard juggling pattern, you could imagine throwing one ball much higher than normal and another ball much lower than normal so that they land in the opposite order from what they would have otherwise landed. If you're first, mm-hmm. if you have two balls that would have landed in order one, two, you throw one really high, the other really low, they switch places and they land in the order of two, one. And sight swaps was just a way of uh, mathematically laying out all the possibilities for switching positions among balls in a juggling pattern and thereby creating new juggling patterns. 
But they didn't take into account anything like behind the back throws or off the heads. It was simply no. just the tossing of it? Yeah, site swaps were only keeping track of the order in which the balls were thrown and the order in which they're caught. And this turns out to be a brilliant simplification because there's, there's so many things you can do just thinking about that and completely abstracting from all of these other things, you know, like where where I throw it from or even how many hands I have in some sense. So it was really kind of focusing on one particular aspect of juggling and just ran off with it. And it certainly has created a lot of interesting patterns that didn't exist before. Absolutely. There are a lot of very interesting juggling. If you look at juggling now, and you look at juggling 50 years ago, it just looks different. You yeah. Know, it looks different, not just because there were different types of throws that people have invented, although that's the case, and not just because there's a lot more body rolls and body placements and things like that, but also because of side swaps. I remember there was sort of a division, like there was Anthony Gatto and the people who were very resistant to the idea of side swaps. And then there were the people, I think it was sort of a performer almost non-performer type of divide where the performers saw no real value in it? You know, there's a, there's a parallel in science. They, they claim in, silent, in science that when a new idea comes along, the people who believed in the old ideas aren't convinced, but they eventually die off. <laughs> and, then, and then the younger generation is used to the new ideas. And I think, I think that was exactly the case with Sideswap. The old timers didn't get it, didn't need it. You know, some did, of course, but, you know, many of them felt that way. And then you had a new generation who were just raised seeing it right from the start and, you know, don't wouldn't think twice about, yeah, of course, you include side swaps in what you're doing. Yeah, when people say the numbers, I still am a bit lost. I, you know, I recognize the patterns when I see them as sort of side swap patterns. But if I saw a pattern, I could not necessarily identify what numbers it represents. Actually, I can't do that either. <laughs> Some people have really are really skilled at looking at a side swap and being able to back out what it is in their mind. But I'm not actually very good at that. I guess it's also easier for simulations to use those type of uh, calculations to create since they have a reference point. So you can do sort of a computer simulation using site swap numbers. Uh, you can. I mean, and there's a whole mathematics um, side swap, which is very interesting, not just from a juggling point of view, but from a mathematics point of view. It's a branch of mathematics called combinatorics, and side swaps fits firmly within that. And a lot of results in combinatorics and in group theory turn out to apply to side swaps. And side swaps led to some new discoveries in uh, combinatorics as well. So, it's, you know, it's a. Uh, it's really good if you're a math guy. Yeah, like myself. <laughs> so after you graduated from college, what kind of uh, jobs did you get? What was your career path? So my uh, first job after college was um, as a programmer and consultant. I hated programming. I, I put myself through college programming, which meant I spent far more hours doing it than any human should. And uh, so I, I grew to hate it. But, I, you know, it was something I could do. It was in demand. When I graduated, there were a lot of places that wanted to hire me as a programmer. And one place that said, well, we'll make you a halftime programmer and halftime consultant. And that I said, great, I'm only programming half the time. The other half was, was economics consulting. And that's where I started to learn some economics. And eventually you became uh, the, may I, may I say, the inaugural holder of the Barbara A. and Patrick E. Roche Chair in Economics at Boston College. How long does it take someone to become a professor of economics? Well, it's taking longer now than it used to, but uh, you can be hired as an assistant professor straight out of getting your PhD. PhD usually takes people five or six years these days. Back when I did it, it was more like four. Some people get hired as professors right out, uh, right after their PhD. Others have to work at it for longer, do postdocs or things like that. Uh, but then you get hired as a young professor and Hopefully it sticks and uh, you eventually become an old professor like me. And uh, you're also very well regarded. I know that you're a highly rated teacher. You got a 4.7 out of a 5.0 possible rating from your students. And I'm sure that pleases you greatly. I'm happy to, happy to be helping my students. I mostly deal with grad students these days. And they're a lot easier to deal with than undergraduates. And you also are awarded a National Science found, fund, uh, Fundraiser Grant. National Science Foundation, NSF. Oh, foundation. Yeah, so I, yeah, I've gotten a few NSF grants over the years, yeah. Is that like the MacArthur grant? Did you get uh, no, half no, a million no. dollars? Near, <laughs> I wish. <laughs> no, it's not nearly as impressive as a, as a MacArthur grant. No, a National Science Foundation grants are, I think, you apply for. 
and uh, there's a, there's kind of a weeding out process and small number of the, the best applications get them. There's still good money. There's still usually a few hundred thousand dollars, but you don't get to pocket most of that. Most of it, your university gets to pocket and a lot of it you use for hiring grad students and things like that. But you do get to pocket a little of it. Nice. So that's a little better than uh, street performing money. <laughs> it's, uh, it's pretty good money compared to street performing. Yeah. Now, in addition to Claude Shannon, you're also good friends with one of the early prop innovators. Tell me a little bit about uh, Todd Smith and how uh, your friendship with him came to be. Todd and I uh, were, were great friends and I still uh, I still miss him every day. It's interesting how we first uh, met because uh, we came, I, I had uh, had an idea for a pattern to put tape on juggling rings that would kind of look good, you know, just a geometric pattern on the rings that would look good when you, uh, when you threw them. And I showed it to Todd at one of the juggling festivals, maybe like 82 or 83 thereabouts. You know, I showed it to Todd and he, he said, yeah, this is pretty cool. You know, just come hang out here. Hmm. And at the time, a lot of... Uh, a lot of really good jugglers would hang out with Todd Smith at his uh, at his juggling booth, and I thought Todd was the coolest guy in the world, and uh, I wanted to learn how to be cool like him. Todd, unlike most people who actually are cool, liked hanging out with um, intellectuals. He liked hanging out with smart people, and um, so it kind of it kind of worked as a worked as a friendship. He liked to hang out with smart people and me as well. <laughs> well, he was he, you know, he hung out with a lot of a lot of jugglers. I don't, I'm not going to denigrate you in particular. <laughs> well, yeah, I actually called it as I remember Club Todd. Uh, yeah, so they would, you know, the prop, the, the vendors would be selling selling their props during the day at the IJ Festival, and then at night the tables would be covered, and he would bring out, you know, beer or whatever, and uh, a lot of folding tables, and uh, yeah, it became Club Todd. And not only were you a friend of, of Todd's, you also helped him with the business. And you were also instrumental in creating uh, one of his club styles, the Assassins. <laughs> uh, that's right. You know, as we became friends over the years, I became more interested in the business. He he well, he asked me. You know, over time, he would ask me to become more involved in in the business. He was always soliciting advice, and so yeah, we we uh, I went with him to Mexico to Guadalajara to where he made he had a beanbag factory at the time. I uh, later still, you're right. I just kind of helped develop this uh, juggling club because you are said known sort of as a, a club passer. And in fact, you won a gold medal in I think 1994. What division was that, and who did you pass with? That was uh, in a three-person line. The other people I was passing with were Barry Rosenberg, who was a longtime member of the MIT Juggling Club, an old old friend of mine, and Benjamin Elfont, and Benjamin was a juggler from the Moscow Circus who uh, emigrated, uh, lived in Boston, uh, came to the MIT Juggling Club. Uh, he was a phenomenal club passer. Do you remember how many it was and how long it was? How long the, or how many throws? <laughs> well, embarrassingly to say, I believe yeah. we won with 12 clubs, so four, four each. We did 13, but we didn't do 13 long enough to to qualify it, but neither did anybody else. So we just did 12 for longer than anyone else. It was a long time. I don't remember how long. But, you know, the numbers juggling was not nearly as big a deal back then as it is now. I mean, I think the actual competition was held in a squash court. There were maybe five people watching. So it was just not not a big deal back then. What do you think the current record is for the three-person line? Good question. I think Jungleissimo have done maybe 18. <laughs> 17, wow. something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah. All the records have gone way up. I mean, you know, we were doing all single, we were doing all single selfs. So the whole right. doing double selfs, double self throws just revolutionized club passing. And uh, this was well before that. Yeah, I remember the first time I saw the 10 clubs with double selves. It, it looked so much more logical. Yeah. And the single throws. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was a real, uh, it was a real innovation. So I'm still trying to learn passing 10 clubs with, uh, with double cells. Well, if we ever get together, I'll be glad to, uh, to help you. <laughs> I've become extremely close to qualifying it a few times and I'll, uh, I'll get it. In addition to, to competing, you also were a, a, a judge and, and a, a director of the championships. How involved did you get with the IJ and, and what was your role as director like? I had been involved in judging the competitions for many years. So starting in the uh, in the uh, early 80s, 
when I was involved in in uh, judging and later I'd made suggestions for, you know, modifying the rules to make them a little bit fairer or whatever. For a while, I was sometimes being being the lead judge. So one year uh, they just said, we don't have anyone else to do it. Will you will you just run it? I think I was a little in over my head. It was a fascinating experience. You know, I'm not it's interesting not being a performer, but still having to deal with all the things that performers have to deal with. I'll tell you the one thing I'm proudest of about that year where I was running them, and, and that is that we uh, needed an MC for the competitions, and the MC at the time would perform during intermission. And so um, I, had, I got Bob Nickerson to be the MC, and not only that, I put him in a tux. I said, this muscle shirt isn't working. Right, right. <laughs> and so I, I think that's my proudest thing is putting him in a tux and, and having him having him perform. Um, I also did a rewrite of the rules that I think was very useful and lasted for like 10 years before they got rewritten again. Now, what do you think about the competitions now? It seems as if they, they didn't really catch on to the idea that uh, we have a lot of competitors. It seems like year after year, it hasn't grown. Do you think there's something in, that's just inherently difficult about judging and competing as a juggler? And we're talking about the performance element, not the numbers or the joggling, things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there are a lot of things that are interfering with it. I, many jugglers, for a while, it, it seemed quite prestigious to win uh, the IJ uh, competition. I think, you know, since the rise of the Internet, we still haven't found this new balance between a live competition, a competition where you record things, uh, what's the best thing you can get on video. You know, the heyday was before, essentially before YouTube, and YouTube changed everything. And I think we still haven't found the new equilibrium yet. Yeah, I wish it, um, I always found it difficult to see the, the comparisons, like when you have a Diablo uh, player versus like a club act. Well, this has always been been an issue is like, how much is this a formal juggling competition and how much is this a talent show? You know, and and the answer is it's kind of both. And it's it's, uh, it's this uh, the elements of both can be a little jarring to meld. I mean, I'm also a big supporter of Jason Garfield and his World Juggling Federation and trying to do more formal athletic type juggling competitions. I, I was a, a judge for some of his things as well. And uh I'm a big supporter of both. Yeah, I have in my notes that you appeared on the ESPN as a judge for the World Juggling Federation. <laughs> yeah, not many economists end up on ESPN. What do you think are the odds of actually getting juggling in the Olympics? I know that's one of Jason's goals. Do you see that as a realistic aspiration? I think it's realistic. I don't think it's realistic in the time frame he has in mind. Uh, but certainly lots of sillier things have made it to the Olympics. I, I don't see any reason why not. Uh, I mean, one thing that I think helps is that juggling now is more widely accepted in the general community as a hobby than it used to be. So when I took up juggling, it's like, oh, you're a juggler. That means you're a clown, mm. you know, and there's nothing wrong with clowns. But that association makes it kind of impossible to think of it as a sport. And I think that association is much weaker now than it used to be. A lot more people, you know, juggling was didn't exist as a hobby. It was only a performing thing. And so people mainly just associated with clowns. And now, you know, now, now that juggling has existed as a hobby for one or two generations, I think it's much more acceptable. I think people are much more open to the idea of thinking of it as a sport than they used to be. Yeah, but like you said, I think people think of it as a hobby. To go from a hobby to an actual sport, I think there needs to be a lot more structure, a lot more international competitions. I know we have the IIJ uh, having an international competition, but it seems as if the rules of the Olympics and the need for a sport to be highly publicized and watched by many, many people and having sponsorship, and it, we're far away away from that. I think one of the biggest uh, obstacles is that to be a sport, it needs to be very standardized. And, you know, many jugglers resist the idea of, of having standardized competitions. They just want to do, do their thing. My guess is that that's probably as big an obstacle as any. But it's not as big an obstacle, you know, having it be a hobby that a lot of people do. That's not as far away as saying this is something that only people in a circus do that perform. Right. I think, I think we're part of the way there. I definitely support the goal. Do you think we need to start with uh, 
with standardized props. I mean, that'd be one thing where nowadays you have like a person with a bean bag, even in numbers, competing against someone who might be using Russians or a hard lacrosse type ball. Do you think there should be a division in those areas between the props? I'm not worried about that. I mean, I, I think it will come. I think if, if there does become a sport juggling, the sport juggling will have its own official props and they'll have tight rules on what you can use, just like any other sport. But my guess is that that will stand completely divorced and separate from the whole rest of the juggling world where everybody does whatever they want to do. And what's your feelings towards uh, activities like combat juggling or some of Jason's more uh, diverse variations on it? Do you think that's a good thing for juggling? It represents it in a good way. Like if that became the sport that sort of the public knew, how would you feel that represented juggling? You know, I'm my, my attitude is to, you know, let let a thousand flowers blossom. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't I, I love the street performing. I love the clown performing. I love the uh, athletic style juggling. And, if you know, if combat's another thing that takes off, I've, I've got no problem with it. Uh, I just say, you know, let 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 all of these flow. Juggling is, is just been wonderful for juggling all these people that wanting to do poi and things like that. And then they say, oh, maybe I can take up a little juggling, include some of that as well. I just think all of that is wonderful. I'm, I'm with you, but I always say let 10,000 flowers blossom. <laughs> <laughs> I wish we had that many juggling flowers. <laughs> I, I'm just a bit more, more wide open in my thinking than you, Arthur. So you Yeah, 10,000 is way too many. Sorry. <laughs> is it too many? Well, let's get back to a little bit about the science of juggling. <laughs> I know you uh, co-authored an article actually called The Science of Juggling. What do you mean by the science of juggling? Well, the uh, I guess there's two things I can talk about. One is the article, mm-hmm. and one is the the book with Jack mm-hmm. Keldon. Yep. So when the, balls collide. So the the uh, article uh, was back in the 1990s, and at the time, just wanted to let people know that there were various scientific ways to think about juggling, and the article focused on on a few different ones. So one is one was sight swaps. So that's just kind of, you know, the mathematics of juggling. Another was robotics, which is just how uh, how you can make machines deal with juggling as constraints and, and similarly human movement studies. Juggling imposes certain constraints. If you want, you know, four balls to be moving around in the air, there's a certain things that have to be done and seeing how humans and how machines can deal with those constraints and get the job done, that's kind of an interesting area for scientific pursuit. Just the way, just as the same way human movement scientists look at how do you optimize running, you know, or how do people swing on swings? You you say, well, how do people do juggling? So my co-author on that science of juggling article was a human movement scientist. So that was what that article uh, was about. I mean, there's also cases where science uses juggling, but the science isn't about juggling. So, for example, going back to 1903, there have been lots of studies where people want to study how do people learn things. And so we'll take juggling as a discrete thing you can learn. You don't know how to do it. Someone teaches to you and then you can do it. And so people have examined things like um, different teaching techniques or having an older person teach versus a younger person, men versus women teaching. Just using juggling as an example of something that can be learned and examine different teaching methods to see which ones are more or less effective. So juggling has all of these different sciences. And so that's what that that early article was about. And uh, I was very pleased about that article. By the way, there's a photograph of a juggler in it. You don't see his face. It's actually Tony Duncan, uh, who was photograph for it. We got $1,000 for writing that article, and Tony got like three or four times that amount for being in appearing in it. So oh, pictures pictures are worth more than words. You but know, I pictures worth a thousand uh, words. It's true in dollars, too. It's in a thousand words, but it's also been uh, translated <laughs> into nine different languages. Uh, that article has been, yeah, translated. I, I'd like to gather up copies of all of those uh, now. I, don't, I only have some of them. But yeah, it was a, it, it got translated all around the world, which which I was just very happy to see. And do you receive an additional payment for each translation? Uh, nope. Nope. <laughs> nope. One time, one time fee for, for writing it, and that was that. <laughs> and, and juggling has also been used to sort of measure the, the growth of the brain. 
as an activity that you could sort of say, does this help to increase the, the neurons or the activity in the brain? That's right. That's right. Yeah. So more, more recent studies have investigated juggling. Uh, many other activities, too. Juggling wasn't particularly special. It's, again, just some discrete thing. People don't know it. You teach them and they know it. And you just measure the difference in the brains before versus after. And uh, not surprisingly, if you learn how to do something, then the parts of your brain that are involved in that thing are going to, you know, grow. And uh, it's true for juggling too. My understanding of that is that people think, oh, your brain grows, but it's just more, it's just more of the parts that are dealing with uh, throwing and catching and grasping. So it's sort of very sort of specialized growth. It doesn't like necessarily make you smarter. It just increases the areas that deal with those particular capacities. Uh, that's right. But the brain is is really very interconnected. You know, there's not the, the areas that are discrete areas, one versus others, it's kind of mushy and there's a lot of overlap and there's a lot of, um, you know, things happening in one air, area, lighting up things in another area. So um, it probably has overall benefits as well. So basically we can quote Arthur LaBelle as saying, the brain is kind of mushy. <laughs> if we boil it down. You bet, yeah, write that down. I, I that's, that's important. <laughs> we'll quote you. Now, uh, obviously you found this area very fascinating and you'd expand it into a book with your co-author, Jack Calvin. Tell us a little about that book and uh, where we can get it. It's called When Balls Collide, Understanding the Skills of Juggling. Right, right. So we, are, we self-published it uh, under Lulu Press. So you can uh, buy it through them. You can also order it from Amazon, but we get a smaller cut if you do that. But, but that's okay. We originally had the idea for writing this book many years ago, and we talked about it. And um, finally, years later, we, we got around to actually uh, doing it. The main thing we want, we're thinking about is kind of what makes juggling hard. And ultimately, what are the limits to juggling? So there's a sense in which what we'd like to be answering is what's the most number of balls anybody could juggle? I mean, we have an answer, but it's got a lot of caveats. But um, the idea was to examine all the different constraints to juggling and seeing which ones are kind of the most binding. And so thereby more generally just analyzing what's going on when you juggle. And we think some of this information could be useful for learning, for training. Um, so we've got a few sections in the book about that as well. So sections on how to improve your skills based on these ideas that you and Jack have formulated. Yeah, yeah. And what do you think are the limits? I mean, I know there was just a new world's record for 11 balls. Right. Well, do you we, think 13 is possible? Yes, yeah. We kind of um, said, well, assuming there's not great improvements in training methods or things like that, we were guessing that maybe 15 would be about the, the upper limit. 15, just based on the ability of the, the, the height you could throw, the speed of a person's reflexes, that type of thing? All of that stuff. The most limiting factor is avoiding collisions. As, mm. they, as it gets higher, the, the amount of precision. So, you know, there's a certain level of precision that people have when they're throwing things. I mean, if you look at professional basketball players, you know, throwing a basketball, foul shots, they can't get them 100%. They have errors. Typically, an error might be in about about 1% error in angle, for example. Similarly for darts, there's just these limits how accurate people are. And you just apply those limits to what's required for juggling large numbers of objects. That's where you really start running into what's the most anyone could do. Essentially, you have to get really lucky to get, to get a run with really high numbers because if your usual error is 1%, and if you're juggling enough balls that a 1% error would typically cause you to crash after two or three throws, well, you got to get lucky and have it be right within a half a percent or a quarter percent. you got to get lucky 30 times in a row or something. And there's just a limit how lucky you can get. So that's why you called it when balls collide, because you, you feel that's one of the main issues of yeah. the highest numbers is precision. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, there's also this book, When Worlds Collide, and I was trying to be literate, but mm -hmm. I, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe nobody picked that up. Oh, of course I did, but I, I just didn't want to mention it to make me <laughs> seem elitist and all that stuff. So, And what do you think about clubs? What do you think? I know there's nine clubs have been juggled. Has it, has it been flashed or juggled? I think it's actually just been flashed. I think it's just clubs. been flashed. You know, I am amazed at how many people now have qualified seven clubs. Because I would have said, in fact, they did say, there, I, I was in an in, 
interviewed for an article about Anthony Gatto, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago, 10 years ago, where I was just saying how incredible it was that he could run seven clubs and the amount of precision is just astounding. And now, you know, there are hundreds, thousands of people who can do seven clubs. It's just, I, I, I'm really stunned at how many people can do seven clubs. <laughs> and I still think Anthony Gatto does it the best because of his ability to perform it on stage. You see a lot of people who can do it in a gym setting, but to do it under pressure as well adds a whole other element. I mean, YouTube really changed what people try to do is juggling. Before YouTube, you'd only work on things if you could eventually get it half the time, 80% of the time. Now people work on things that they're only going to get one time in 10,000 because they're recording themselves. And when they get it that once in 10,000 times, it's on video and you can put it up on YouTube and everyone can say, ooh and ah. So, it's uh, like the whole trick shot uh, element of, of YouTube yes, where yes, someone yes, takes yes. a ping pong ball and hmm. takes a thousand times to throw it into a cup across the room. Right. So I think it's really changed what at least some set of people are willing. There's lots of people who are willing to work on, you know, absurd things because getting it once in a thousand like a trick shot, that's good enough for YouTube. Yeah. It kind of gives you kind of a misleading idea of what's possible. For, for a juggler to be actually doing in person. Oh, I, I, that's probably true at the extremes. But I mean, it's also the case that whatever level of juggling you're at, you can find someone on YouTube who's just a little bit better than you, and you can just learn so much from seeing them. So I think the technical ability of jugglers all around the world is just skyrocketed because of YouTube. And certainly, like you said, Jason Garfield has a role as well as in bringing the, the sporting element and getting more exposure to the people who are not necessarily performers, but who are just skilled, skilled, yeah. skilled jugglers. Yeah. So bringing in people who otherwise would never have tried it to, to try it and be interested in it. Absolutely. Well, let's talk a little bit more about your career as a professor of economics. Now, I know you've published 25 articles in the top economic journals, but what really fascinates me about your career is the fact that you're also a world traveler. How does an economics professor get to travel so much? Luck. <laughs> I mean, if you do stuff that other people are interested in, then others' universities will invite you to come and talk about your stuff to them. Over time, I just developed this network of places where I knew people and they wanted to hear what I do. And so gradually, I just got more and more of these invitations to to go elsewhere. And I really like traveling, so I didn't tend to turn them down. So I know other people might get invitations. They might only go once or twice a year because they didn't like to travel, but I loved traveling. It's also the kind of work I do is relatively broad. Within economics, I work in a relatively broad field rather than a very narrow one, which just means there's more people out there who are interested in the kind of work that I'm doing. And that also increases the number of invitations I would get to, uh, to go places. And where are some of the places you've gone and where are some of your favorite places? I love going to China. China. And I really, I started, when I was a younger professor, the first invitations I would get would be local schools. That's, that's typical. Once or twice I got an invitation to go to England and I thought this is the most amazing thing, just going to another country. I had, a, as a kid, I'd never, we'd never traveled. I'd, until I went to college, I'd never been more than 200 miles from my home. I'd never been on a plane. And so, you know, the whole seeing the world was kind of alien. When I first started going to Europe, I said, this is just the greatest thing. This is completely foreign and different. And, and after a while, that feeling of foreignness went away. I mean, I still loved going, to, especially if I was going to some country I hadn't been to before. But it didn't have the same, I don't know, frizzle. it didn't have the same uh, feeling of complete novelty. And then about 10, 15 years ago, I started getting a few invitations to go to Asia to go to Taiwan, Japan, that sort of thing. And as soon as I went to those places, that whole feeling came back that this is really foreign. This is really different. Uh, I love it. And uh, going to mainland China, even more so. I developed a, a lot of connections with, uh, with universities in mainland China. Before COVID, I was going twice a year to, to various places in China. I was literally in Wuhan a few months before the outbreak. So we could trace the outbreak back to you, basically. Clearly, yeah. <laughs> now, with my interest in economics, I have to ask, are these paid trips? Do you get a, a payment as well as the trip itself? The vast majority of them, no. Usually, they just pay for you to go. Essentially, the way it works is almost all the money you get comes from the university you're working for. And the more you're promoting yourself, that means I'm also promoting the university. 
So Boston College, whenever I publish a paper or go give a talk somewhere, this is more glory to Boston College and they compensate me for it. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. That's good. And what's the like the, the least favorite place? You ever go to a place you think, well, I'll never go back here again? <laughs> you know, I don't know that I have that as an attitude because even if somewhere, you know, I, I say this, this is novel. I, this is, this is different. I, I, it's cool to see it. I mean, I guess there are places that oh, I feel like, okay, I saw it. Now I don't need to go back, but uh, you know, I can't, I can't think of anywhere where I hated going. There, there were always the professors there invited me. There were always the grad students there, and they're always keen and enthusiastic, and you talk to them about work. So there's a sense in which you, it's it's not like juggling where you can have this like really terrible gig. Even even the worst gigs in this profession are pretty good. I've had some terrible gigs. Maybe I should switch to economics. Is it too late? It's probably too late. <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid it might be. Now, we're getting towards the end of our time, but I'd be amiss if I didn't ask you. I'm a young juggler. I'm starting to make some money. What should I do with it? <laughs> is there any safe investment nowadays? Is there any kind of wisdom you can pass on to being a professor of economics? Spend less than you make. Okay. So number one, spend less than you make. Yeah, that's number one. That, in fact, right. that's number one to 10. Spend less than you make. <laughs> so live below your means. Is it good? <laughs> that, that will always serve you in good stead. And pay off your, your debt first. Well, economists would always tell you to pay off your highest interest debt first. So if you have like an 18% credit card and a, and a 5% mortgage, you should pay off the credit card and not the mortgage. But economists and humans tend to be a little bit different. So like humans, we would say, well, if you have a lot of different debts, pay off some of them, even hmm. because the fewer different debts you have, the it feels less overwhelming. If you, if you owe money to 10 different credit cards, that feels really terrible. And if you only own a three, it doesn't feel so bad. So uh, what we tell humans is pay off as many different debts as you can. So you only have a few of them. But what an economist would say, the best thing to do is pay off your highest interest debt first. So some of the takeaways we can have from this podcast is the brain is mushy and economists aren't human. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> okay. If you want any more pearls of wisdom like that, we can go, <laughs> go right at. No, I mean, there's actually a very active area in economics of studying the extent to which people are not as rational as economists would like them to be and how that affects behavior and, you know, how we have to modify our models. So, uh, yeah, I, I guess maybe economists are becoming more human. I know that COVID is a bit diminished. I don't think it's completely gone. Uh, obviously, but have you been back traveling? Where, where have you gone in the last couple of years? Last May, I uh, finally said for the first time since COVID, I was going to go go to a real conference. It was in Brussels. I went to the conference, and of course, I immediately got COVID. So <laughs> that was not not as great as it could be. But um, I was stuck in Europe for two weeks because I kept testing positive, but I felt fine. So after a while, I said, "Well, this is just." A U.S. mandated vacation. I'm just gonna like go to England and have fun. So, actually, had a great time. Now, were you quarantined in a hotel, or were you able to go out and spread the virus to others? I mean, I quarantined for a few days, mm. but then once I was over it, right? I, uh, I just kept testing positive after I was over it, and so I just, <laughs> well, okay, I'm just gonna enjoy Europe. And unfortunately, I read on Facebook that uh, you've recently been suffering some other health issues. How does the future look? Uh, are you on the mend or what's going on with your health? So I presume you're talking about cancer, yes, um, which I contracted um, a little over a year ago. And um, so far I'm doing quite well. And I'm really, um, really thanking modern medicine. The improvements in cancer treatment has been phenomenal. I've got really good care. I'm going to Dana-Farber, which is a really excellent cancer center here in Boston. And, uh, but no, my diagnosis as recently as 20 or 30 years ago was pretty much a death sentence. And now they say the chance of recovery is excellent. So it's just um, glad to be alive now. Well, of course, we're all sending out positive uh, thoughts and uh, feelings for you because you're a, an important part of our juggling community. I mean, like I say, I really usually have performers or, or people of that nature on drop everything. But there's also very interesting personalities and people who have contributed in different ways to our art form. And you're certainly one of those who's been a, a big part of the IJ and a big part of the juggling community. And uh, will we be seeing you at uh, next year's IGA festival? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, my first festival was in 1977. I've only missed two since then. Well, I also plan to be there. So uh, the people who are of our Drop Everything fans, 
we'll get a chance to meet Arthur LaBelle in person and thank him for all his contributions, especially towards the science of juggling. And let me thank you as the host of Drop Everything for being a guest on episode number 109. Big thanks to Mr. Oh, actually, Professor Arthur LaBelle. Thanks, Arthur. Thank you very much. That's very kind. It was, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 109, my conversation with Arthur LaBelle, author, juggler, and of course, professor of economics. Thanks, Arthur. And also a big thanks to the IJA for sponsoring this podcast. Go to juggle.org to find out about this great organization that's been a service to me and the community of jugglers for over 75 years. Now go out there, drop everything, except when you're juggling.